Hi, welcome to Scattered. We're a group of friends from the same church who are serving God in different countries and we're meeting online to chat through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We'd love you to join us. Hi everybody and welcome to Scattered. I am here this morning with Jill and Juliet and hopefully Mary will be back in a minute. Her, sadly her internet's just dropped out but I'm sure she'll be back. We are looking this morning at 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 6 to 10 and so far in the letter we have seen Paul exhorting Timothy to uh, stand up to some false teachers that were in the Ephesians church at the time. He gives some directions for uh, how churches should be led Um, and he also warns that people will depart from the faith but that will as much as possible, we should be exhorting each other to stick to the true gospel and celebrating that. Um, and he finishes by saying, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So having slammed the false teachers in the last section, Paul now moves on to the correct approach to godliness in the section verses six to ten um so just before we start start really getting into the meat of it ladies can you tell me what these things are in verse six and um, paul says if you put these things before the brothers what are these things well i guess there's two parts to that i think the thing that immediately preceded this section is having a right view of creation and understanding that God is good and gives good gifts to his people and so I think that's the thing that Paul's just immediately taught before this and really is a massive underpinning isn't it for how you see the whole Christian life but I guess bigger than that then he's wanting Timothy to teach good doctrine and so the gospel at the center and just making sure that he keeps the main thing, the main thing. So that those are the two different angles on these things. Juliet, what did you think? Yeah, that's what I read as well. So either what just comes before this or actually the entire letter preceding this as well. Um, it could be taken as uh, the whole body has been, uh, the whole, what we've read so far has been like, what's good doctrine and um, false teaching. And that could be... Um, trying to teach the true doctrine to the brothers is um what would we see from like the whole beginning of the letter thanks guys in this section there's this theme isn't there of training um so where in this section do you see it mentioned what's it training in and what's the point of this training the word for training i read is like greek the greek word is gymnasio so it's like what we think now of like gymnasium (laughs) training and he uses it both times training our body and also training for godliness so it's an active um thing um that we do it's stark isn't it how many times that word's used because it's being trained in the words of the faith in verse six then you've got train yourself for godliness in verse seven. And then, yeah, the contrast between bodily training and spiritual training. So, yeah, it feels like it's the key word in the whole section, isn't it? It's, it comes up a lot. And, w- and what is it training in exactly? Because when we know he's not like physical fitness is good, isn't it? But that tends not to be Paul's focus. 
the um the other explanation for the word that I found was to be no like the trait another um yeah use of the word would be to be nourished or fed and so I think that fits in quite well with that first reference in verse six that we're trained in the words of the faith and good doctrine so it's almost like a feeding or a training of our inner self isn't it and that that would then affect the whole of the way with that we live yeah I think training also can be a mutual encouragement a sharing and he's very pre very much present in um amongst the body of believers and so um as we saw before we saw the characteristics of a, a leader or, or someone who's instructing the brethren would be someone who's actually living their life with them and a godly life would be one way that he'd train the body they seeing his uh doctrine and action in his life would be a training for them yeah and i think also there's that contrast isn't there between <clears throat> sort of almost the junk food of the irrelevant and silly myths and so that is a really poor way to be trained as opposed to um allowing yourself to be nourished and fed by the the good doctrine and um <clears throat> yeah the words of the faith so I think that's sort of portrayed as like a really nourishing meal that is really satisfying and really builds us up. And the irrelevant silly myths that he references in verse seven are just like constant McDonald's. Just an aside, one of my children had a cookery lesson at school yesterday and he didn't want to do it. And I said, sweetheart, you need to go because otherwise, how are you going to feed yourself for the rest of your life? And he just went, duh, McDonald's. So, um, but that wouldn't be nourishing for him, would it, long term? I have not. I have nothing. Nothing to say. I just think that's a good illustration, isn't it? Let's not be people that feed ourselves on constant McDonald's because we know that where that would take us. Yeah, and so I guess applying that analogy to um, our lives and to this passage. So at the end of um, verse seven, it says, "Rather train yourself for godliness." So what exactly? Um, what do you? Th think of when you hear this word when you hear the word godliness what's the first thoughts that come to mind or what do you think other people think non-christians think when they hear the word godliness sadly i think they would think of it as quite dull funless um living sort of a very moral but dull way of living yeah and maybe one that's like quite disconnected from reality like people who are just living some kind of uh, life that's super good and um, but actually uh, not a very real thing. Yeah, I guess you're right, Juliet. So the the one one sort of arm of that would like be pietism, wouldn't it? And sort of a monk or a nun that take themselves away from the world and are just focused completely on um spiritual realities and not um no good in this world hmm. and then the other arm i guess would be someone that would be judgmental and thinking oh like i can't believe they do that kind of behavior or that kind of behavior or that kind of behavior because i'm really great <laughs> so what do you think this passage means by godliness julia well i think 
again, it's helpful to go back to the Greek <laughs> because uh, the word for godliness is eusebus, which means well reverence. And so it, the focus is on your relationship with God and how you revere him. And so, yeah, I think that that has quite a different focus because it's not really a focus on how they're relating to other people, but actually how that person is relating to God. And, um, and I guess that relationship with God would then, you know, from what we're learning from Timothy would lead to um, godly actions to other people. Yeah, I was um, I was reading with somebody this last few weeks, Tim Keller's little book, The Art of Self-Forgetfulness. And that's really helpful in that he would say godliness is just thinking about yourself less and keeping your focus on the Lord more. And that, But actually, the impact that has for the way that we live and the way that we react with this world is massive. It, you know, our perception is that that would just keep us um, heavenly minded and no earthly good, but actually somebody that's heart and mind is focused on the Lord and not on themselves is far freer to love others <clears throat> and not be constantly analyzing how they come across, how they appear. So yeah, I think it's counterintuitive, isn't it? But actually the more our hearts and minds can be focused on God, the more um, the fruits of the spirit grow in our lives and we're better at loving others. But what does working in god working on our godliness involve in verse 10 it gives us some hints of what it's like to work on our godliness i guess the words toil and strive imply that it's hard work don't they it's not like lying in a hammock drinking diet coke it's harder work than that it's hard to hear isn't it i think we're instructed to be godly and yet we're told it's going to be really hard Toil and strive just doesn't sound like something I want to do. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because lots of us are really committed to doing that for the uh, the health of our bodies. So, you know, I know when Helen lived with me, she was very committed to going to the gym for long periods of time. Maybe that was because it was quiet and she had headspace rather than being in a house of 13 people. But that sort of physical hard work, our society is really on board with that, isn't it? But yeah, it feels so much harder to make that commitment for something of eternal value. In my my version, well, one of the versions I read was uh, labor and suffer reproach. And so uh, in terms of like suffering reproaches that we're willing, we'll, we will face people that oppose our view and um, that we would persevere regardless. Um looking to God. And I guess that's true, isn't it? You know, when we have um, opposition or when we are um, suffering reproach, that is kind of when we're pushed more, isn't it? To to really examine ourselves, hopefully, um, not just the other person or people. We're really forced to examine, okay, do I believe, what does the Bible actually say about this situation or this thing that I'm saying? Um, is it what I really believe? And and that does grow you as a Christian, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. But it is hard work, isn't it? Because I think we've got to, first of all, unpack what our culture would say on that, whatever that topic is, Topic is because those are the voices that are just landing for us. We're not, we don't have to work hard, do we, to hear 
what our culture thinks on whatever the topic is, but we do have to work hard to um, realize what those cultural messages are and then find out what the Bible says or what um, a Christian view on whatever topic it is. And so that is hard work, isn't it? Because just sit and receive our culture's messages through all the different means that filter into our lives, but to choose to listen to another voice and to work hard to find out what the Bible's view would be does require toil and striving, doesn't it? And so I guess off the back of that, I'm actually going to skip a few questions ahead and say, given that it is so hard, um, how can we as Christians help each other in that toil and strife, but in that toil and striving? I think having a community is like one of the most important things. And Timothy's addressed that over and over again. Like it's so important to be taught um, and also to be able to build each other up in that way and encourage each other. I think it's quite hard when you feel like you're standing by yourself facing, you know, facing the trouble having to choose oh, God's way or just the people's way, the culture's way or community's way. It's really hard doing that by yourself. But when you have a community of people that you're working through these things together and able to encourage each other and keep pointing each other to these things that we're reading, um, that makes a whole load of difference. <laughs> and I guess part of that as well is being teachable. It's not only being taught, it's being teachable, which I think uh, for us is often harder having that that humble posture towards those trying to speak into our lives. I think the other thing is, as a community is, you know, making sure that that's a conversation that we're having, like how are you getting on in with nourishing your soul at the minute? Like that idea of, because <clears throat> we're really good, aren't we, at catching up with how our children are doing, how work's going. There's all these other questions that when we meet with friends, even within our Christian fellowship, are almost higher priority than that question of how's your how's your walk with the lord how are you doing it um nourishing your heart and almost for that to be a normal question that we ask and wrestle with and are honest about that oh i'm in a really bad patch or i'm you know i'm staying in bed in the morning i'm really struggling to find time um uh, yeah i just think trying to create a culture where that's a normal question and there's a an honest wrestling with um and, and it's different for everybody, isn't it? What that looks like to nourish your soul. Um, I meet with somebody at the minute that just really struggles with reading. And so, you know, she, she's she been really excited to find Psalms um, in songs. And that's a way that she can study the Psalms is by just listening to um, different versions of the same Psalm um, in different songs. And actually as she's walking around, that's allowing the same Psalm to be going through her mind. And so it's it's really great, isn't it, to realise that we're all different and the way that we're nourished by God's word and by his truths is different for different people. And I just want to revisit a little bit why we want to pursue godliness. Because it's not just, or at least it shouldn't just be, because I want to be a better person. <laughs> what What is the 
the reason for us pursuing godliness something something i found uh really helpful um someone illustrated to me like um when we get married it's that's not really the end of the marriage you want to get to know your spouse constantly and it's a bit like that when we become a believer once you know god you don't just stop knowing him you want to know him more and it's it's actually something that you want to do because he's saved you and there are so many facets to god that we can't even that I think someone who spent 50 years reading God's word still has room to learn. Mm. Yeah. I think as well, the stakes are really high, aren't they? So, you know, it would say here in verse eight, when he's contrasting bodily training with godliness, that um, it, um, it prepares us for the life to come. And I think we've got to be realistic, haven't we? That if we're not nourishing our souls and um, allowing God's word and God's truth to fill our hearts, then we will just drift and we'll stop believing. Um, and mm. so actually it's a really active thing, isn't it? If we want to make it to the world to come, then we need to be filling our hearts with God's truth or else we'll just be in, you know, the, the danger is we're just in church because that's what we do, but our hearts aren't engaged and we're not, growing in our confident love for the Lord. And and I guess the one that we're going to be spending eternity with is God. And so the more we can get to know him now, the more excited we are, we are about eternity to come. Mm. Yeah. I read something that was really helpful that said that we need to remind ourselves that godliness is an internal thing that has an external outworking so when Jill said that you know you have to work on your soul and nurture your soul that's very much an internal thing isn't it but also this thing that I was reading said that for Paul godliness isn't static it's like an active um the phrase said active kinetic obedience uh that springs from an awe of God and what he has done through Jesus and they quoted Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8 you know here I am Lord send me where the call of Isaiah, he's seen the Lord, he's seen what's happened and what the Lord has done. And now he's saying, here I am, send me, change me, do what you want with me. Um, it's that internal change with the external outworking that we've seen throughout the rest of the letter. Yeah, it's also helpful, isn't it? I think at, look when we look at verse 10, that you know we are called to toil and strive, but actually our, our confidence is in God. And so actually... There's, there's work for us to do, but our hope is on the living God, the saviour. And so he's the one that um, brings that change ultimately. So it's not all on us. The I think the danger of a passage like this is I have to beat myself and work really hard, but it's actually, it's positioning our heart, isn't it? Um, and having whatever practices are helpful to us to position our heart so that the saviour's love can work in us. Oh, hi, Mary. Mary. Oh, hey. Can I just interject here that both Helen and I are having quite chronic internet troubles. So right now she's meant to be leading this discussion and she's actually had to disappear because she's tried to come back on several times. Um, so it's quite distracting for all of us. I think it's part of the nature of all being on in different countries. Verse 10 can be quite tricky, can't it? Because I think people can use that 
um, to say sort of a universalist view that everybody is saved. What do you ladies think verse 10 actually means in relation to that? Um, yeah, I was reading John Stott on this and um, he was saying that actually the translation <clears throat> here, because obviously we're talking about this bit where it talks about the living God being who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. That's verse 10. It does sound a bit like, you know, Paul is saying that everybody who um that jesus is the savior of everybody um in, you know including people who don't believe and we know from context don't we that this isn't what paul believes paul isn't a universalist so um but john stott talks about how um actually the translation of especially um <clears throat> is better read as to be precise or in other words so I'm not into the Greek of this, but I think we can safely say that Paul isn't into, Paul the Apostle isn't into universalism. So he must have meant, he must have been trying to kind of highlighting those who believe as as the ones who are saved. I don't know what you guys read about that. I can't, another thing that I read was that Jesus's work is adequate to save all, but effective in saving those who come to him by faith. But <laughs> I just think... When we read passages like this, we do need to see the other places where he talks about salvation. And yeah, he doesn't say that Christ has saved everyone because some are chosen. And you can look at that more in Romans, um, is it Romans 9? So. I think the other helpful angle is the word all. And we've talked about this earlier in Timothy, haven't we, about his understanding of all is all different types of people. So Jews and Gentiles, all different nations, young and old, rich and poor, rather than everybody, all different types. And so, you know, I think he's already used it in that context earlier in the book. But I think, again, how we read all, there's lots of different ways to read that word, isn't there? Yeah, and I think it's dangerous to... You know, I, I, I sometimes feel like, you know, I've had people knocking on my door. I will take a verse like this and this is what they will pin their entire argument for, say, universalism on. And I think that's really, yeah, I think that's not a good thing to do. You must always, yeah, look at the grand scope of, of somebody's writings. And if we, yeah, you don't have to look far with Paul the Apostle to see that he doesn't think that everybody is saved. It is those who put their faith in Jesus. And it, I guess the good principle, isn't it, that we'd use is you, if you're unsure about scripture, you use other scripture to interpret it. And so mm. Juliet said, there's a lot in Romans that Paul probably wrote um, that um, would help us understand that. Yeah. And I think just, mm. I don't think we need to dwell on it, but I think it's helpful to think, you know, if, if you are struggling with the idea of not everybody being saved and things like that, like, the problem with believing that everybody is saved is that it completely undermines what Jesus did on the cross. So, you know, it is a, it is a really tempting thing to believe, isn't it? It's, we all want to, we all want to think that God saves everybody because we hate the thought of anyone not being saved, but then there was no point Jesus dying on the cross if everybody is saved. Yeah. It was really costly, wasn't it? The cross was a really high price 
that Jesus was prepared to pay. And so there must have been a purpose for that price, mustn't there? Yeah. Um, ladies, any um personal challenges from this passage? What's been um what's been going around your mind this week as you've looked at it and what's encouraged you or challenged you? I guess um whenever we're faced with different decisions, like what we said before, we can either set our hope on people, theories, or like the current trends, or or we can set our hope on the living God. And so I think it's a constant um challenge for us, isn't it, when we get faced with something. Do we do we do the the thing that's hard, which we may uh, sometimes is strife and toil, or suffer reproach, um, or do we do the thing that is isn't setting our hope <laughs> there, but setting our hope now? Yeah, it's interesting. I think for me, the contrast is often: do I set my hope in my own abilities, or do I set my hope in the living God? And yeah, my own abilities are so limited, aren't they? When you compare it with the living God, the saviour of all. And so, yeah, this verse has been a really helpful challenge to me of where am I going to put my hope day to day when things are hard in my own ability to fix it or in the living God. It, it brings us to our knees in prayer. I feel like whenever we are trying to use our own efforts to do different things, it's almost um, we're trusting in our own abilities, but when we do trust God, then it leads us to pray so much more. And we're finding that like that is such a real thing for us at the moment because there are so many things that we're trying to do and working out what to do. But then actually what we've been challenged to do is just spend a lot more time praying and relying on God to do the thing that he wants to do and to lead us to the right people that he wants to lead us to and yeah i think that's quite a freeing thing as well as like um the prayer often does lead us to action but in a very different way in a way that we are trusting someone who has all our days planned has everyone else's days planned and has a good plan for us to um be doing in serving him I was like struggling with this because I was like, what area of my life am I actually very godly in <laughs> rather than <laughs> rather than like which areas do I need to work on? I was like, I don't think there's any areas that I don't need to work on. Um, but I was, yeah, I, I was particularly um, struck by my lack. I think my lack of discipline at the moment is pretty, is something I'd really like to focus on. Um, you know, these words toil and strive are actually quite helpful to me because really it does feel like toiling a lot of the time when you're when you kind of your conscience and I guess the Holy Spirit points out something to you that you so for me at the moment, and this probably sounds very unspiritual, but for, for me it's food at the moment. I'm really struggling with not being greedy and like eat not eating more than what is necessary and and I think that reflects a wider picture in my life of just being a little bit undisciplined with my quiet times and a bit undisciplined with just seeking God and prayer and things like that and it feels like a little 
um, microcosm of this is my struggle with food. Like I just, I do what feels good rather than what is, you know, the harder thing, which is saying no and, you know, seeking what is better than food, seeking satisfaction in God. Um, so, yeah, I feel convicted this week by this passage because I think, you know, the the emphasis for Paul and Timothy, you guys have probably already said this, is that, you know, if you are, if these things are in your heart, if you are trained well in these things, then it will be something that then affects others. You can teach others. But if I'm not disciplined myself, if I'm struggling in these areas of discipline, then how can I teach my kids well? And how how are they watching me be undisciplined with how much I watch Netflix and how much I'm on my phone? If they're watching me like that, then how am I meant to teach them how to be disciplined in their lives? So, yeah, I feel not just the pressure of like personal, like seeking personal godliness in, in different areas, but also the effect that has on other people like Timothy's congregation he needed to teach them how to be godly so he needed to be godly and I think that's really helpful because I think once you start talking to each other about godliness is the quick thing that you realize is you're all not godly (laughs) and Mm. I think most believers struggle with this or (laughs) I haven't met someone that hasn't struggled with this and so I think it's like mm. um, once we get start talking about what it means to live a godly life, then we start touching the deeper areas of our hearts and, yeah, are in a position then to encourage each other. And how can we set our eyes on um, heaven and on God and on um, – and that, that changes us now, but I just mean like – yeah, how can we keep encouraging each other in that way? Mm. And like discipline sounds like a horrible word, doesn't it? Like, you know, it's, it's, it has so many negative connotations, but really actually within it, true joy is found, isn't it? Like I would say Jesus is the most, was, you know, showed us what it was to be disciplined. And yet he was a really joyful person who enjoyed hanging out with people. He enjoyed going to feasts and um I think he had a good sense of humor and things like that so it's not like being disciplined is boring and just hard work all the time it does actually lead to true pure joy which is much better than the joy that we seek in the other things that we feel like good about doing um you know like when you go to the gym for a a long time and you get fit and then you feel better because your body's in a good shape and you are eating better and you can you can eat more food (laughs) um because you're in you know you're burning off the calories every day and you know like it's just a better place to be um I feel like that we can be like that in our spiritual lives we can be fitter um and but find just such joy in that because it's so good for us it's so good for our souls I'm not very fit by the way (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking that, Mary, when you were talking about the food fight, because it, it's a choice, isn't it, to find your satisfaction either in those temporal things or in the real things. And I think so often we think of godliness as just dis- like just saying no to things, but actually it's a, it's saying yes, isn't it? And it's cultivating a taste and a desire for something that's so much more satisfying. Um, 
but that and then the and then the and then the satisfying thing is that then god points us towards food and says this is good i created it <laughs> yeah and we can enjoy it well good full circle juliet because that's um yeah that was last week wasn't it that whole idea of yeah celebrate the good that god gives rather than um say it's a bad thing mm, yeah oh man Great. Thanks, everybody, for persisting, despite various members of the team dropping in and out. Uh, thanks for all your thoughts. Uh, we will see you next week for the last section of Chapter 4. Bye. 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 Bye.